You're listening to Soul Radio. Welcome to Channel 33, a new podcast series presented by Soul. I'm your host, Yusra Al-Bafir. Throughout this series, I'll be speaking with creators who are shaping the cultural landscape and raising the bar in their respective fields. Delving into their personal journeys, we'll explore the essence of creative work and the ingredients necessary for a mortal impact. Artist and director Akinola Davies is my guest on this week's show. He grew up between the UK, US and Nigeria. A good foundation for a global outlook and his propensity to shapeshift. Akin is a true polymath and third culture wonder. A photographer, filmmaker and DJ, he recently became the first Nigerian to win the prestigious Sundance Short Film Grand Prize for his short narrative film, Lizard. It's an experimental journey into religion, politics, trauma and indigenous worship, all through the eyes of a child. In recent years, he's become the go-to creative to bring to life fashion collections from brands including Gucci, Bianca Saunders and Kenzo. Alongside his branded and narrative film work, he's also created music videos for artists including Dev Hines, Larry B, and Misha Mafia. One thing I take from Akin's work is its glaring honesty. Over the interview, you'll hear Akin talk about the importance of supporting your friend's work, tuning into ancestral guidance, the influence of his mother, and why he's so driven to document African cultures. I hope you enjoy our chat. So, I mean, you grew up in Nigeria, in the UK, in the US, you went to boarding school in Kent. You've basically, you do epitomize that third culture child in in the modern age. How was that for you? And how do you feel like those experiences have sort of shaped your current view and approach to life? Wow. Um, Start off with the easy ones, Isra, why don't you? (laughs) Um, It just felt like normal. I didn't really know I mean, I knew what other people's kind of experiences were and I knew we were very sort of like privileged to leave, lead the lives we lived. But I was like, I'm the last of my family. So I was brought into a situation which was, you know, I wouldn't say highly fractured, that's not the right term, but I was born in two years later, my father who was like the sole breadwinner passed away. So like little, little or no knowledge of mine like my family was definitely in in the sense of like transition and trying to sort of like figure things out so a lot of that movement now that I can look back of it back at it was like just trying to I don't know like maintain a semblance of family really like my older siblings were in the UK and Mm. and my brother Wale were in Nigeria so all three of those things just became very familiar, sort of like very quick, even though we, our foundations like predominantly like Lagosian or, or Southwestern Nigerian, like Yoruba, mm. even though that was pretty much most of our upbringing, we knew that, you know, like every year we would come to London and then subsequently when we became closer to teenage years, like then our siblings were in America, so we'd go to America. So it was, it was very enriching, you know, like culturally, I guess, I guess that's probably the biggest thing is like, I know, I always surprise Americans when I like talk about something like 
intensely American, like <laughs> like American football. I was just on a job and I was like talking to this guy about American football and he was like, wow, he really knows his stuff. And I was like, yeah, because I've followed it all my life and just like really random things. So I guess in that way, it made me um, a social chameleon, like mm. really quickly made me very able to shapeshift in loads of different places and then going to boarding school in Kent again you know like pretty much like English middle class you know sort of life and then an acceleration into what the English middle class experience must have been like and then you come I'd come back to London at like half terms and stuff and hang out with my cousins who you know I guess we're, we're all sort of like really and truly like you know working or like middle class or, or somewhere between that bracket depending on like where you lived or whatever but my childhood was was pretty was pretty great there was a lot of movement which I really enjoyed mm. I think it shaped me in many ways I think in many ways it made me quite empathetic it made me quite mm. um curious I think it made me love other sort of love other human beings um and try and understand a lot more about like the human experience um and i think it, i think that that period of time in the 90s as a black kid growing up was very optimistic you know like mm. hip hop was it was becoming what it was becoming you know like the the world was in like <laughs> albeit it was very like uh imperialist or whatever but it felt like things were very open um open you know like we didn't have as much connection as we had now so we you still existed in your silos so everything was really exciting to go and see everything was still like brand new everything was big and amazing my mom you know is like a huge part of that she kept us really grounded and made us like really appreciate everything we had and everything we did and kept us really close so i would say mm. yeah it was it was a, an amazing and very privileged foundation to have i would mm. say mm. And how do you think that these sort of rich, diverse experiences have shaped your sense of self and then been fed through, translated through your art? I think it's, I was having a conversation with a young director the other day, yesterday because she was in a bit of a dilemma about whether she wanted to do like a really like cool, like clouty project or like do something that was like more served her interests, but like she didn't think people hurt age would find interesting and I was like well you know left to me I would always choose I would always chase my interests whether or not like other people found interesting and I think that is probably um, because of my sort of background and my nurture I have like quite a varied amount of interests and I think that translates in my work because at the same time not that I think of it that consciously but I just I'm just interested in things that will make me think and make me want to engage in something like a little bit differently mm. I like I like the idea of um I like making work that feels quite sensitive quite gentle I like making work that feels like extremely accessible to everyone um I don't like making work that feels like niche or like mm. ex exclusive because I think um, I think, I don't know, me as a filmmaker, I, I want everyone to see my work, whether, whether you're a different race, whether you're a different age, whether you're a different sex, whether you're a different um, uh, religion. I like for people to like see some, see like a generality within my work, but maybe like position as like a, as, as an interesting question or. Yeah. Or, universality. Or, or, 
yeah, or like a universality and a form of dialogue. You know, I like mm. to, I like to bring people in and then like hit them with one, two. Like, <laughs> you know, like have you thought of this? You know, have you yeah. thought of this or something like that? But yeah. yeah, I would probably say that I think. Yeah, the dance, right? The dance of provoking without being driven by provocation, of mm. honesty without being driven by like disruption. Mm-hmm. Um, and and how did you free yourself, would you say, from the burden of consensus? Because that is, I think, for most artists, the biggest struggle, right? That sense of how will I be, you know, being perceived in general is so, so difficult to grapple with. And you being the youngest in your family, how did you free yourself from that? What was that process? Um, that's a really good question. Um, to be perfectly honest, I would probably say it's a combination of like depression (laughs) Um, um, and like I'm a tourist so I have like a real determination to like experience things for myself. I didn't really have any front-facing like skill sets as a a kid, as as a teenager maturing into adulthood. I wasn't like particularly good like in any vocation or anything so I was like damn like you're gonna have to figure this out you know like all you have is like maybe charm and you know (laughs) like I don't really know like how far that's gonna get you you know so I just kind of thought okay cool I just need to figure out or find something that can maintain my interests and keep me paid you know Mm. and whatever that is I'm gonna give myself like most of my 20s to figure that out you know Mm. and then in my early 20s I like fell into like depression and I think that in itself was another factor because I think that kind of killed my ego like whatever ego I sort of had left over residual ego it kind of was totally diminished in 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 that um which was actually really freeing it kind of just allowed me to really start again like you know there's no not put myself under any pressure, any constraints, any sort of like um, stereotype. I was like, yo, you can just be as weird and as wonderful as you want. And then I think I had conscious or unconscious decision to kind of um, disconnect from Nigeria for a while. Didn't go back to Nigeria for about like nine years. Um, post, post my like second, end of my like second year in uni or something like that. So it was quite a while till I was like my late 20s. And I think that really helped because it kind of took away a lot of that expectation, a lot of that kind of status, like what you're, what you're supposed to be doing as a Nigerian and the type of work you're supposed mm. to do. Like I was away from a lot of prying eyes and it kind of enabled me to just like, you know, intro- have like a better introduction to my true self as opposed to like someone who's just like cloaked in all this kind of dogma or like this is what you're supposed mm, to do. Identity. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think that was really healthy for me because it kind of allowed me to like, in a sense, almost like reinvent myself for myself. And then when I had to re-engage with Nigeria, I was like even more confident because I kind of knew myself, you know? Yeah. Um, and when did you first feel yourself drawn to this drive to document, to archive? When did you start feel yourself, feeling yourself trying to conserve memories through photography, through sort of the arts? Mm. Um, I don't want to be one of those people and be like, I've always done it. Mm-hmm. But I think when I started going back to Nigeria after like that nine year hiatus, um, I would record, I still have like loads of 
um, recorded conversations with my mum because I always used to have these long conversations with my mum just like she would just talk and I would just ask her loads of questions and all that kind of stuff so I think I'd been doing that without necessarily knowing and then when I I think maybe it was like 2016 or 2017 I got I was I'd been shooting a bunch of stuff and then an artist called Red Light UK Red Light I shot him a couple of videos and he was like okay here's some money you can shoot whatever you want you know so I was like for real and then I went to Lagos and filmed these kids who like rollerbladed and I just remember that day was like it was just like something in my mind just like exploded. I was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be mm. like documenting my culture as it is today, especially like trying to like celebrate youth and put them forward or whatever. And I think pretty much that, that was when it started. I think after that I did marks of worship. And then I think it like maybe still recently, but up to recently, like a lot of my work has been like heavily about archive and documenting mm. and, and stuff like that. So I would say probably around then, around that 2016, 2017 period, it really sort of like crystallized. And then I think over the few years, it's just been like a different variation of like archiving and different methods of archiving and trying to put value on everything. Jen Nkuru, this amazing filmmaker, also Nigerian, she made this amazing thing called um, Rebirth is Necessary. And she was being interviewed by someone, maybe like Kam uh, Kamasi Washington, maybe. And he asked her like, how do you decipher what's of value when you're looking at archive and when you're sourcing material? And she said something really beautiful, which I quote so many times. It's like, she says, there's no hierarchy in an archive or what, however I'm obtaining information. If it's like 35 millimeter film from like, 50 years ago but you can also find like a whatsapp voice note which kind of does the same thing and they should both hold the same level of prestige if they fit mm. into what you're doing so yeah I, that's kind of how i try and take to archiving yeah. um so going back to nigeria and that sort of you taking a hiatus taking a break and going back and and mm. and drawing from that so what what were the examples of visual culture and storytelling that moved you at that time I went back to go to a wedding. One of my baby cousins was getting married. And I was just like, oh man, I haven't seen these people. I haven't seen my cousins in so long. Like, mm. you know, I'm the cousin who's just like on the sort of <laughs> outskirts. Like I've got these like long hair of dreadlocks. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, but it was just like, it was, it was just like being pulled into like your auntie's bosom and just being hugged yeah. and just like not let go. Of. I was like, okay, yeah. I'm really part of something. I should never forget that. I think that wedding, because in Nigeria we have the traditional wedding and that's the one I went for. I went for the traditional wedding and it was just like, it was just such a reintroduction to all the things that tribally that I, I find very romantic. Um, mm. Just like the way we have these like ladies who um, kind of like the MCs and they're like, they kind of the microphone and they're all singing and they're making up these songs when the man's family is coming mm. to like prostrate to the to ask for the woman's hand in marriage from blah and both families are on both sides and then the drummers are playing and then the brides coming and the in money and there's, <laughs> yeah there's a big hoo-ha and then the money and then I was just like I was taking pictures I was just like snapping away I was like moving around the room just like snapping everything 
I just, it was just like, I just wanted to consume it all, you know, I was like, I was like this, I need to film this, you know, I need to film this, I need to, I need to show this, like, in, in for what it is today, not this, like, dated per- perception of what it is, you know, mm. and then from there, my interest grew to, like, okay, well, beyond just being Yoruba, like, what do Igbo people do, like, what's their form of code, what's their tradition, like, what mm. do Hausa people do, because, I've, and then realizing even further, I was like, wow, the dialogue is really fractured amongst us, because we don't even, like, travel to other parts of Nigeria to experience other cultures that we are sort of entitled to and like in tandem with all the time you know mm. being being a Lagosian like everyone comes to Lagos so it's like being a Londoner everyone comes to London you know you know your 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 your, your monopoly on culture is so like narrowed that you're mm. not even really trying to engage with like all the other sort of like really interesting parts of sort of like culture and, and, and understanding. And I think that just being at home and just having like a real sort of love for home and people just made me want to try and connect those dots, you know, like try and put myself in a position where I like, I want to carry that on my shoulders. Let's do this. And like, I think we can do this. Like we are connected enough, me and my brother, to be able to like fly to Kaduna and shoot shoot a derba you know or you know we, like plans to just go like to to Sokoto and film like this big fishing festival you know and mm. because I, I kind of was like wow this is where I'm from if if we don't tell this story in our generation then like they're either going to be lost or someone else from outside is going to come and put their own spin on things you know I'm just really like curious about sub-Saharan Africa and Africa in general you know like mm. I know we spoke about going to Sudan. I know, like, like these are for me. Like, that would be the the the. If anyone's like, what do you really want to do? Is like, I just I want to take like a year off and just like go to every African country <laughs> and just and just jam for a bit. Yeah. You know, like just yeah. literally just jam. For Soak a bit. in. Yeah, there's just like a lot of that that I want to to try and document. There's a lot I want to try and see. There's a lot I want to try and encourage, pre- 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 predominantly kids of African descent or, or black people in general to just come and explore the land, you know, come and come and share their resources, come and put money and value back into their spaces. No, I mean, I completely get that. And I think that also like detaching from the perception of Africa or detaching from like what we're told Africa is and seeing for ourselves that Africa mm. is just so many things. And I have this really deep frustration with this, constantly like polarizing representation of Africa. It's like Africa is either rising and full of hope and all this potential or it's hopeless. Mm. And it's both, you know, it's both of those things. And mm. the plurality of, of African cultures, cultures mm. is, is often so lost in, in, these, in, in this pigeonholing. Um, but I, I find that like, even with just your approach to blackness, it's very pluralistic. It's very sort of nuanced. And you really kind of present black experiences and skin and hair with this like care and attentiveness and, and celebration. And so what is, when you're, when you're making art around black people, around black culture and, and African culture and all sort of the different um, black realities, what, what, what intention do you bring to that work? I, you know what, I, I think, my intention is to be really selfish because I, there's not enough of this around. And even when it is, it's like being limited to some sort of like category or some box or whatever. So 
my really my intention is to create images for a younger me just to be like this is you and actually like take this and wear it and embrace it and feel and see yourself so that you never have to like walk out in the street and not feel like you're not represented you know mm. I think for a lot of my understanding and interactions with with um black people or, or people melanated people we share a lot of commonalities but we're all like so different we're not all just like this sort of like monolith like what what is the what are the aspects of things that kind of show the specificity of, to someone? So to make them feel seen, you know, like we can all just be like, yeah, there's a black guy running across that represents all of like blackness. But no, if you see Injera, you know what that means. You know, if you see Pounded Yam, you know what that means. You know who you're speaking to in that moment, you know, in terms of all aspects, all facets of our being that I think is so rich and really difficult to capture so what I try and do is like the ones I'm aware of I try and put them front and center whether mm. it's like the Kenzo thing or whether it's my films as it's the same approach to like showing other parts of Africa mm. and mm. it's the same approach to showing other um, other aspects of black culture there's just this I have a growing obsession with collecting like African art because I feel like I want to bring all the energy of my ancestors. I'm like, yeah, come, like, <laughs> pull like, up, come, pull up, enter me, like, use me as a conduit to do something for all of us, you know, like, whatever it is, however it can be translated in my work, like, just come and enter, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you, you know, you mentioned ancestors, and I know that ancestry is, is such a big thing for you and it's not just a theme in your work it really is drives your life's path you know the ancestral Mm. guidance and the ancestral wisdom and in a lot of your work you do explore this tension between the different faith systems um, and and the celebration of culture through these uh you know acts of worship so in your film about Fela, you, it was very much the ancestors, you know, in high fashion dancing. I remember seeing that with you actually in, in when it was premiering in, in that, um, in the minute short film mm. yeah. uh, event. And then with Lizard, which we will get to properly, but with Lizard, <laughs> you're exploring Christianity. And, yeah. you know, you're, you know, I know that your background as well is, is Christian Muslim. So tell me about how that, how unpacking that has helped your work. I think a lot of my fear and like dogma and policing stems from packaged religious contexts. We're still like unpicking a lot of religious interpretation, you know? And I think that I have always been spiritual and my spirituality got funneled into like the Christian system, you know? But my simple mind is like, okay, I'm going to chop it up to myself like this, right? If the British came to Africa, right, and met the indigenous people, like what were they doing? Like what was their what was their system? What was the infrastructure for themselves? Like what what were, because evidently there was something there, right? Mm. So to me, I think I just I've just leaned into that. I've just leaned into that as being like that's going to be my refuge that's going to be my salvation because ultimately like I think that's what still compels us still binds us and that's what I want to that's what I want to go and explore and and in order to do that I need to unpack a lot of this like religious first world like colonial like dogma because ultimately it's very inhibitive for me 
is mm. very inhibitive for a lot of us. And how did that come into play when you were working with such an experimental film like your short film on Fela? Because that is a story that has been told before, but you took a very different approach in unpacking like really wide, broad themes like colonialism, power, Nigerian history. How, what was your method with that in, in bringing to life Fela's story through spirituality and through, you know, indigenous worship? Sure. I think there was a period in his life where like, just like shit popped off. I realized that someone like Fela is a national treasure. You know, his story has been co-opted and told and reimagined and recycled and recycled and recycled. But the thing is that the thing that gets recycled are all the like visually stimulating bits. When they say talk about blackness, everyone wants our, our rhythm, nobody wants our blues or whatever, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's like with Fela, it's like everybody wants his rhythm, but no one wants wanted the blues. There was always his, he married 20 wives, he smoked a lot of weed, he sat around in his pants. He like fought the government, but I was like, you know what? Like ultimately all that stuff has a human impact on him. You know, it has a human impact on those around him. Like, yeah, it's easy. Yeah, it's easy for, it's easy for him to be front and center, but how does his behavior affect the, the women in his lives? Like what are they, what are the consequences of his behavior on their bodies or their minds? You know, what are the consequences of his behavior on his children's, you know? And for me, that was like, that was the sort of space I wanted to try and occupy because I was like, hmm, if I want to make a documentary about Fela, I want to make a documentary about Fela without ever hearing Fela. That's that's like my, that was, that was my initial approach, you know, but I need to pick a period in his life, which was pretty formative in him becoming more like indigenously spiritual, I would say, and try and understand like the forces at play, whether it be external forces or internal forces at play and how it informed his music because that period he made some of his most like explosive music. Mm. And I think that the music was so explosive because that comes from like a certain spirit that comes from a certain like, you know, like when you're upset and you just feel like a burn inside yeah, you. The vibration. Like, like, 100%. I'm like, that is your intuition. That is like your ancestors being like, let's punched this fool <laughs> in his face you know? and I was like he translated that into music so like to choose so yeah. how to transmute that vibration yes how you channel your energy into your craft and I think at that period in his time like he was at the pinnacle of doing that and then once I, once you figure out that's the aspect of the story you want to tell it's like what was the foundation for him being able to think like this you know and it turns out his mother was a very progressive communist in Nigeria, like a market trader. You know, like she was just like, she was just like goals, you know, she was mm. just like, she was like a tour de force, you know, you know, really just mobilization, very politically active, very like politically, politically conscious, very like teaching her kids, you know, almost like Tupac's mom or whatever, you know, like very like a, a Black Panther in, 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 in a different context, you know. And then I kind of understood the relationship between him and his mother. And it's like, then there you just have like a lot of similarities because I'm obsessed with my mom. I like to try and understand a lot more about my mom. I like to understand her struggles. I like to understand the way she is based on the world she grew up in versus the world she's in now. So it's like trying to understand Fela in that period from like the world 
that was created for him by his mom and what she, her being a role model is to that role model now living in his house where he's doing all this like funky biz. Like, mm. yeah, I just, I just thought for me, that's a much more human story. That's a much more general story. It doesn't put him on this like pedestal that is unreachable. You know, he's like, he still has glorification. A mom. Yeah. yeah. He still has a mom. He still wipes his ass. He's still like, he's still human. He's still like us. So speaking of narrative film, your first mm-hmm. narrative film, Lizard, won yeah. the short film Grand Jury Prize at Sundance Film Festival. Yes, it did. Sitting Making right you, <laughs> let me see it. Beautiful, beautiful, multicolored. Thank um, you. Making you the first Nigerian to win the prize, which is incredible. Congrats. We were Thank all very, so very proud of you. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I love Lizard. And what was so great is that I watched Lizard after going to Nigeria and seeing those lizards everywhere mm. up north. And I remember the first time I saw the male lizard and it's like that purple ombre that goes into yellow. I was mm. just taken aback because I'm used to like the dusty pale geckos of Sudan. Mm. And so for me, Lizard represents sort of the fault lines, right? The the tension between, you know, Nigerian culture and conformity and dogma and Christianity to that sort of crime terror nexus and, you know, abduction and, and violence and, and the ways in which that world is constant, those worlds are constantly colliding, you know, in the Nigerian space and even the North and South duality, you know? And so, that's you know my perception of it was having just come from Nigeria but what was it for you what did the film represent and what did you set out to do and what do you think you actually achieved (laughs) that was a mouthful mouthful. (laughs) that was a mouthful um I just wanted to put a memory on screen you know like what happened in Lizard for the most part the real anchor of the story which is my relationship with church and going to church and then having this really traumatic incident happen at the end of church I just thought was a good catalyst for a story and then all the other things just kind of fell into place because it's it's really about intuition versus dogma and institution is what I would say lizard is about it's about how like an innocent mind processes information and I think it's just like youth versus older, it's light versus dark. There's just so many things in there that I think I was trying to unpack. But I think ultimately, um, it's really just about the sort of like children on the continent. It's like, how do mm. we, there really is no resolution for a lot of what goes on there. Like there's no, there's no, there's not necessarily conversations around therapy. There's not like conversations around trauma. There's not necessarily conversations around intuition or, or being guided by like spirit or like ants, you know, like a lot of those conversations aren't really happening or maybe they are, but at least I, from my perspective, didn't feel they, they are. Mm. Um, and I wanted to make a film that just paid homage to once again to the younger me you know like film was written for me about me making Um, sense of the world yeah just like trying to navigate this space that's supposed to represent all these ideals but kind of doesn't and it's just really confusing it's just like trying to put that in perspective and balance 
from a child's point of view. And how did you develop the narrative? It's like, do you storyboard? How do you sort of build it out, flesh it out once you have that skeleton? Um, I watch a lot of YouTube videos and I think I was, was trying to figure out how to make a film. I stumbled onto this Tarantino interview and he was like, if you, if you write, if you write a story and you think it's good enough to be a short story or a novel, then it's good enough to be a film. So I'm learning as I go along, but I'm learning, you know, I'm like, mm. I'm searching out, I'm watching films. I'm, I've, I'm obsessed with like video essays, film essays online. I'm watching a lot of those. I'm learning like these like 10 minute videos about cinematography, about lighting, about sound, about, about this, about that. Like on the internet, I'm just like consuming things I find of interest and and like how do I put that into my film? Like yeah. how do I make a how do I make a drama but make it feel like a horror or make it feel like a like a thriller just by manipulating sound and manipulating mm. the audience and, and manipulating color and texture and how do I like create my version Shadows. of my yeah, just like magical you know, it's like all those things I'm sort of trying to to put in so I mean for me the process is just like intuitive it sounds it is quite intuitive but it's also like a lot of um you know there's a lot of years under my under my belt like I I assisted for six years I didn't start really making film my own stuff till like year seven of after assisting so I'd I'd been in and around sets I'd kind of seen what people did I kind of knew like what I think my strength is, like what versus any other director's strength. I kind of think, you know, like, oh, this is how I should do this. You know, it's just like acquiring information in different ways, you know, like from when I did a three-month filmmaking course at the end of 2009 to when I made Lizard, that was in 2020, that's 11 years, you know, (laughs) like... It's, it's, it's not like uh, people might know me as a DJ and, and all that kind of stuff, but it's like I've been working on my craft for like 11 years, you know? So I, you, you would hope that the film would be, would be decent <laughs> at, at that point, you know? So um, And also but, not, not only working on your craft for 11 years, but like really nurturing and fostering your relationship with Nigeria for, for, for many years too, right? Because yeah. it's... They work in tandem. It's it's your craft meets your subject. 100%. And even more importantly, like nurturing the relationship with myself, because mm-hmm. I think that having the confidence to pursue some of the subject matter and the manner in which I want to do stuff, like to me, it comes easy. But what I find speaking to other people it really doesn't, you know, like a lot of people are still like inhibited by dogma religion like culture like gender like sexuality you know like me I don't really care like I'm not trying to hurt anyone I'm just trying to like show us like a version of us that we can all have a dialogue about you know and I think working on myself to a position where like I don't fear engaging in a lot of those subjects is what becomes the foundation for me like pursuing any idea I want to in terms of work I think Mm -hmm. and how does that translate even with so knowing yourself and exploring those subjects it involves you also knowing your mother learning Mm. about your mother and you made a film as a part of your residency at Somerset House uh, called Untitled that was a very intimate portrait of your mother Mm. Um, how tell me about the film and how your relationship with your mother 
informed your creativity as a whole, but also how that film sort of paid homage to that relationship? Yeah, I mean, I have a very like, you know, interesting relationship with my mom. I'm like the youngest and she refuses to stop calling me her baby, which is, <laughs> which is fine. Even yesterday I told her and she was like, you will always. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh God, okay. What would I say? I just, no, I just think for Untitled, it was made in the middle of a pandemic, you know, like I, you know, all the fears you could have of your mom living in Africa and there being like this raging pandemic that's killing older people and people with underlying health conditions, like whatever fear you, you have is like, is a real fear I had, you know? So I was just like, in as much as I've been documenting and archiving my mom and I've made another film of her and another art show I did in Switzerland a few years before, what Untitled was meant to be, I was supposed to go to Nigeria and film my mom where she lives, you know, and document her relationship with where she lives. I couldn't do that. So I just kind of turned inward and had all this, already had all this, you know, like all these recordings, uh, which were stored on this, on WhatsApp, you know, I have like recordings of, my mom from like 2015, 2014, just all on WhatsApp, you know? And I was like, started like listening back through them. And I was like, oh, you know what? Like, this is, this is it. Like, you, you can tell a lot about my mom from these messages. You can tell a lot about a relationship from these messages. And you can tell a lot about her life from like hearing her voice, her talking about stuff and seeing her pictures and seeing her life in pictures, you know? like that film really was like a real watershed moment for my practice in terms of like art like making as a visual artist I would say because it's like everything just kind of crystallized subconsciously like it didn't even feel like I was trying like it just 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 like came out and that's what it was and it's probably one of the, like the most emotive things I think I've made you know but yeah my mom's a G she's hilarious she's annoying she's a total Aries she's compassionate she's more stubborn than than me she's um she has a lot of pride but she's also really fun my mom's really fun she's a you know she's like She's a good companion, I would say. My mom's a really good companion. But I also realise my mom's not going to be around forever. So I think that my work or that work and the previous work I did, which was called In Memory Of, is just trying to, in a way, like prepare myself mentally for that, um, prepare my siblings for that, have an archive already there, which she's participated in, and not just like, you know, she passes away and then we start to make work about her as like an archive mm. that she's like Living. participated yeah. in and she's aware of and she co-signs, albeit, you know. Reluctantly. <laughs> reluctantly, but it's like, as she gets older, you know, and as people, as our parents get older, you know, like they become more of our responsibility and is trying to navigate that space of like, how do you balance trying to, live your own life as well as remembering that to be present and trying to deal with those situations and honor our ancestors because my mom is an, is an ancestor honor them while they're alive and mm. try and as much as possible maintain their dignity and 
maintain their autonomy and maintain their independence, I think is really important. And I mean, and you work with your brother a lot, both brothers. So mm. you work with your brother who's a musician, who's in Shodham Camp. And I'm assuming that you worked with your other brother for the script. No, or no. It's, should, it's the same. I, it's the same brother. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's okay. Good. Yeah, so, yeah. so. But I, I do mean, have another brother. Yeah. Yeah. You work with such a rich array of people and mm. each piece is such a beautiful collaborative effort and so tell me about your creative partnerships especially with your brother who you've worked on across music and film now sure um you know like I like I said collect father figures and my brothers were my first father figures you know I sort of idolized my brothers and my sister um I just wanted to be like them I wanted to be close to them I wanted to be like them when I was younger I wanted to do what they did I wanted to do what I thought they did you know um and for me it's like a no-brainer like me and Wiley grew up together we have a lot of the same points of view we have a lot of differing points of view but I think fundamentally we're we share a lot of like sensitivities and I think um once again I think I'm a I'm a conduit for a lot of things and one of those things is to create space for those I love and care about. And I think my brother is a really brilliant writer. It's evident in the fact that he's been a recording artist in Nigeria for over 10 years and tells stories as well. And I think it, it makes sense for me in terms of collaboration when you asked before, it's like, I'm just someone who realized quite early on that like I'm, I'm fairly good at delegating and getting the best out of people and making them feel valued in a space or in a relationship. And, and I think that is kind of translated to me being a director and sort of empowering those around me. You know, I don't like, I don't need to be the star of the show. And, it, and it's that sense of community, right? And even, you know, in the collaboration, but also in mm. the community of, of that ancestral pool. Mm. And, and I know that community is a big thread in your work. And I, I'm thinking of iconic British filmmaker Manalik Shabazz who just passed away and I know you're a fan of his work and he was really big on documenting community as well as being active and working within the community as an activist how do you see film as a tool for community building and fostering social change especially through and in the diaspora I feel like it's pretty crucial um my my one of my biggest heroes is this guy called Haile, Haile Garima talks about how um, camera is a weapon. And when you shoot that weapon, you have short, middle and long-term implications for what you're doing. You know, like in the short term, it is what it is, but someone might see that further down the line and someone might see that even further down the line. You know, like when you shoot a bullet, it's not just the target that's affected. It's like the people around them, you yeah. know, like they're the going the reverb, they're going to have memory of that incident. It's going to live with them. It's going to affect them in a way. So I think um, images are so important to community building because they can either be subversive in regards to what you're trying to say, or you can literally show what people have done in the past, you know? And I think it's really important that our generation don't feel like we're the ones who are like just figuring it all out because there's like, resources that have like predated us and maybe just because we have technology it feels like we're at the precipice or something but you know Manalik, Garima, Dick Karava, 
Sembede, like all these people were thinking along these lines, like in, in a different sort of generation and actually community building and mobilizing and impact. reaching out to, yeah, they had a huge impact. And, and, but yeah, I just think, I think video and film is really important to that because I think it humanizes us in a way that we can all share in because we can see the visual, you can see the optics. And what do you want your reverb to be? What do you want to leave behind? I don't know. I just want my reverb to be like, yeah, that nigga really put his community forward, you know? <laughs> like, like, like I really like, you know, it's just about that life, you know? Like, I just want to keep making work for the younger me, showing our humanity and magic. Um, and I want to build infrastructure, you know? It goes beyond just being a filmmaker. I want to build infrastructure. And by through building that infrastructure, I want them, the methodology and the ethos within that to reflect the practices that I think are important to, to like our advancement as a people in general, you know, in kind of like unlocking a lot of those freedoms through the process of building that infrastructure and what that infrastructure ultimately represents, you know. Um, but that's like a life, that's like a life's goal, you know, it's not something that I'm, I'm hurrying to do, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's something I will manifest, you know, and something I want to manifest through being a conduit for my ancestors. It's something we will manifest is probably what more I should say. They were just telling me, don't forget us. <laughs> something, something we will manifest together. So yeah, that's, that's what I want to do. I mean, whatever shape that takes, you know, whatever I think it might be now to what it is in the future, I don't know. I don't want to put any limitation on that. In the, in the spirit of the glorious Nina Simone, her words that an artist's role is to reflect the times. To your mind, ro what role can artists play today in their work and around it? Um, that's a tough one because I think to each his own, you know, I feel like not everyone because we are so diverse, not everyone needs to play that role. Um, I think those who feel like they are built uh, to do that or have can carry that on their shoulders should because emotionally and mentally, it's not for everyone. Like, don't don't die on the hill for your people. When your people I can't you come and kill myself. <laughs> you know I mean? Don't die on the hill for your people if your people didn't ask you to do that. You know what I mean? Like, it's only like, not everyone is built from that cloth. Like, just live your life, living your own life and being healthy and going from A to B is enough, you know? But I think as an artist, I, do you know what I mean? I think there's so much in the zeitgeist that plays into my work. I feel like those who are inclined, who have like a, maybe a fearless particular type of calling to a certain sense of communal responsibility, um, because some, some people are great um, vice captains. Some people are captains. Some people are just team players that like know a role and want to play that role. And I think everyone should just like see their strengths. You know, not all of mm. us need to be Diana Ross at the front of the band. Some of us need to be some of the other people at the back of the band, you know? Um, and I think that artists, I don't think that, I think that art is just, art just really has, artists just have a responsibility to express themselves, you know, 
to each his own, like I said, but those who feel that way inclined to like carry their community on their back, then, you know, I think it's for us to support them through the means of what it means to be supported in a capitalist society. So it's not just like likes and pats on the backs, it's by speaking about their work, it's sharing their work, it's like putting your money towards that. I'm a big, big advocate of like buying my friend's work because I think, you know, 10 pounds, you know, 10 pounds here for something you've slaved to do for a long period of time is the least I could do as a friend. Like paying to get into your club night is the least I could do as Mm. a friend, you know, because I think all those things are just like, is what this society like depicts as value. And unfortunately, whilst we all want to create space for our friends, our relationship with this civilization is very transactional you know and we can't be naive to thinking oh it's just like art man it's just art like no we need to like support each other whether that's through words of encouragement whether that's like emotionally whether that's financially whether that's like verbally whether it's you know it is what it is and also we need to like compassionately critique ourselves like I think if anything art needs to play a role in compassionate critique of where we are as like civilization, you know, those who are inclined. Speaking to Akin was wonderful. He's already hit the benchmarks of industry success, but never stops moving, growing and learning. I'm looking forward to see what he does next and how he continues to push the envelope. Be sure to keep an eye for the show's program notes. We'll have links to his work across music, fashion and art. Thank you for listening to Channel 33 with Yusred Barir. And our guest today, Akinola Davies. We're going to take a break over the summer, but we'll see you in autumn. For more on our series, go to soul.digital. You can also follow us on Instagram by going to at souldxp and at yusra and Bakr. You're listening to Soul Radio.